0: Welcome to Oz Property Investors, where you're smart, no BS friends who tell you the most interesting stuff going on in property. Join your host Jeff Miles, former mortgage broker and property developer, alongside Joe Tucker, Director of Property Principles Buyer's Agency, as they interview some of Australia's top property experts and commentators, so we can all become better property investors together. And we are live! Welcome everyone. Welcome, welcome. Oz property investors, we have the Steve Polisi and the real Steve Polisi on tonight <laughs> and myself. <laughs> this is going simple. to be an epic session. How how are you, Steve?
1: I'm really good, man. Yeah, really good. Um, if you've noticed, I look a few years younger. I actually had Botox a week ago for the first time ever. Oh, I don't know. How, how good do I look? Jesus. Did you? <laughs> yeah, I did. You gotta try everything once, Joe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> how was the experience?
1: It's fine. I allegedly, put a couple of little needles in your face, and then supposedly it's supposed to be good for aging because like you age because your muscles are really tight and thing, but um, uh, just relaxes them. But um, well, it's yeah. funny that you say that.
0: I, I was speaking, I was speaking to a real estate agent the other day, and he was like, "Oh man, I'm I'm just having a real struggle day, um, and I can't see, so I'm just going home right now." And he went, he went through this. He had a great property that I that I um, was looking at, and he ended up getting Botox, and it turns out he got injected. And it went too deep into the nerve and shut down his eyes. And he couldn't see for like six weeks straight. Um, And it was just all blurry and upside down. So
1: uh... I got like such a small amount. I'm like, do not make me look like an idiot (laughs) And then, uh, but no, it actually comes out right. Like, it's it's fine as long as you don't go over the top. But um, yeah, might might consider it again, but we'll see how we go. (laughs) We'll
0: see how we go. You look very bodacious. (laughs) So that's good. What about you, Jordan? How are you, mate?
2: I'm good, mate. The the real estate policy doesn't get Botox, so just, just leave it there. <laughs> uh, no, doing really well. It's been uh, cracking week. Been back and forth from the Gold Coast, so enjoying the weather over there, and come back to gloomy Melbourne every now and then. It's just rainy and miserable, but um, no, other than that, living the dream. That's what
0: we want. Well, tonight's session is going to be a very interesting one. It's something that people don't really talk about very often. It is about how to exit property. Like everyone's got an idea about how to get into property, buy, buy, buy. Like that's the the ultimate goal, right? Just keep buying. But how do you actually get out? Like how can we build a strategy and a portfolio that allows us to exit? Because one of the things that I say is I don't really care what the asset class is. I want the outcome. I want, the, I want 150000 I want $200,000 of passive income. And property is the vehicle that I use to do that. But how do you actually get out of it? So I think we're going to unpack some wisdom there. We've got the seven ways how to exit property. Um, And we've got the expert that is Steve Polisi, Commercial Property King, and also Jordan Deong, who runs Game Plans, which is Australia's largest and best, I think, uh, what would you call it? What's the platform called? A property strategy portfolio creator? What would you
2: think? Yeah, there's all all things we chuck into the mix, but like online property platform, uh, online property portfolio management system, teacher of things, there's money management, everything's chucked in there. All, all good stuff. All the good stuff. Yeah. So we're going to anyway, un- unpack all think, of
1: that. I think one of the big ones, Joe, is because for a lot of, like, younger investors, and by that I mean sub-50, like, you're not really thinking about exit strategies in retirement. Like, I'm I'm one of the bad ones. I do not care about my super at all. Like, I give it, like, five minutes of attention probably once every six months, and that's kind of it because I'm kind of like, oh, no, I'm going to have enough wealth by then. I don't really care about it, which is the wrong attitude. But with property, I'm so diligent with the exit strategy. So it's a bit of a double edged sword. And I've got a dog in the background trying to eat something. It's such a
2: good point. I don't like, I don't actively, like, sometimes I see where my balance is at and what's changed, like, especially during COVID, at the start of COVID, when my super balance declined, I was like, huh, why is this declining? But it's it's so true. Like, you're so proactive on your property. Well, I am on your property exit strategy. And it's good to just have that holistic approach to everything.
1: Yeah, so well, big,
0: I mean, most people don't even have a, an entry or exit strategy at all. They just kind of buy.
1: Yeah, and we like most of my sales calls is talking about goals. It's not exit goals, but they're actually the same thing because your goal is your exit strategy. But it, the goals just kind of brings it to the forefront. So you're like, oh, this is what I want to achieve, but you're not really talking about okay, what's the actual end goal of getting there because you're putting the steps in place to move that move to there.
2: Yeah, it's actually, okay. And people have this like hard line in the sand of like we'll go through acquisition, we go through accumulating the portfolio, we go through consolidation and paying down debt or whatever that exit strategy looks like. But they they have this misconception that an exit strategy is like this line in the sand and you have to like all of a sudden you're exiting out of it where, you know, you should actually think about your ideal lifestyle and how you want to live your life between now and then and, and build a strategy around what that ultimate exit will look like. But at least you can enjoy some of that on the journey as well.
1: And that, that, that's a good point. So and we'll go through that today on the, the seven kind of exit strategies. Uh, exit strategy doesn't mean you've completely exited. Most of the time it's actually a staged one. So it's like potentially selling a property or using this property. It's not, like you said, it's not a line in the sand. It is a, a slow progression, especially from the tax minimization aspect as well, which we'll also talk about.
0: Yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the questions that's already kind of worked up um, about tax. So let's run through the quote of the week. Steve Palisi, as uh, as the guest of, uh, of Honour, what have you got? What is your quote of the week?
1: You mean the, the fake Steve or the real Steve? The,
0: <laughs> <laughs> the fake Steve. <laughs> no,
1: mine, mine's actually my, my favourite quote. Um, it's Winston Churchill and it's, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. So that generally just means to me, you get to the end of your life you've planned your life so like you've you've made the choices you're the ones that's guided the decisions and your outcomes and it's an it's an intent plan or exit strategy
0: mm, yes okay I'm I'm all about that and I think that that's that's one of the things that you don't see a lot is people actually planning out what they what they want and that's what I like like with chatting to you guys that you guys are all about strategy like strategy is a core piece of fundamentally both of both of your businesses and uh, you actually just take the time and people don't take that time to to plan out their strategy Um, what about you jordan
1: what's yours i was gonna say you you also don't know that's the thing so many things change like Mm. seven years ago i was an engineer designing mine sites then i was working for a buyers agency then a year and a half ago i was starting my own buyers agency and then hopefully in a few years i might have some kids and then your income might increase and all of a sudden you go, oh, I can actually afford private schools now and that changes. And so mm-hmm. life in a way. So they're a fluid plan as well. They're not a fixed strategy. I get, and Jordan will have this more than me. I get people that want to write this perfect plan and I think that's how it's going to play out, but there's not. There's so many variables, interest rates, lifestyle, income, who you partner with, divorces, kids, <laughs> you've got all that stuff as well.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um yeah, th- we're going to unpack all of that because that's super, super valuable. Um, but uh, the real Steve Polisi, what is your quote of the week, mate?
2: <clears throat> uh, mine's from big Mark Zuckerberg and I've been following him a little bit recently with all the stuff that he's doing with Meta. But the quote is, I'm here to build something for the long term. Anything else is a distraction. Uh, and I think like I've been following him with this whole Metaverse thing. And like, it's kind of a bit of a laugh at the moment. Like everyone's having a dig at him. I don't know I think the share price is dropping or something. And it's like, you know, you see this image of like a, a, an annotated Mark Zuckerberg in the in the metaverse and it looks so silly, but like his whole philosophy is like I don't care that people are laughing at me or I don't care that like it doesn't work as well as people would think that it would work right now, but like we're dedicating all these resources and they're spending like billions of dollars on billions, but millions, building something for the long term. So like he's not being distracted by, oh, it's not what, people think it's going to be right now or it's not, the technology isn't at where it is right now, but we want to be like the first to market in, a, in an area that's just going to grow and develop over the long term. So like it, he's like super inspiring and just like having that longer term, bigger picture of he might be a bit of a joke at the moment or like everyone might be having a laugh at him, but he really doesn't care. It's about that long term horizon.
1: I, I actually had an argument with one of my mates a couple of weeks ago that he's like, Oh, that's ridiculous. No one's going to live in a fake world. And then literally in the same conversation, he said he was playing video games that night. And I'm just like, what's the difference, mate? You're living in a fake world for three hours.
0: <laughs> exactly. You're going to leave your real friends in the real world to go play your video games in your uh, your, your fake world. 100%. Um, my little quote of the week is a basic one. Um, everyone's heard it. It's by Napoleon Hill. It is plan your work and work your plan. Um, you need a plan. You need to work that plan. Um, without a plan. For me, it's not, and this is kind of where we we're all gonna have different types of strategies. For me, I just have an end ultimate goal and have a bit of a framework of how I'm going to get there. But as as Steve said, things are gonna change, fluctuate, everything's gonna happen. You're gonna get married, you're gonna have a are you gonna buy a PPOR? Are you gonna have an investment property? How is it all gonna balance out? So I like to think my next property. Next property purchase that I get is crystal clear. I know exactly what that property is, and then I can see a bit of a framework for what the next few will be. But it gets a little bit blurrier the further away it gets. The blurrier it gets, um, and it's just knowing that this next property is crystal clear, and that's going to help me get through to those next next few, which is going to lead to that ultimate goal out there. Um,
1: and you yeah. don't have to have you don't have to be like us where we want to have a huge portfolio. A lot of a lot of clients, for instance, they've got their PPR. They just want to buy the one property. They might buy the one residential or commercial property just to take some load off and have a nice retirement. It's still a strategy. So like, it's just a simple strategy. It's buy one property, pay it off over 20 years, use the income to kind of live off or sell it. And we'll go through that today as well.
2: Yeah, you nailed it. Even just the, the PPOR, like the, a strategy could be, I just want to buy a house that me and my family are going to be happy in forever. I want to get the debt down to zero and I want to know what time frame I can get there by. So you're right. It doesn't have to be like this massive extreme 200K passive income portfolio and that's the end goal. Everyone's different and everyone has their own goals and risk profiles. And it's just about identifying what that is for you and what it looks like. Next, spot on. 100%.
0: Hundred percent. Okay. Well, let's dive into our uh, sponsored post by one Steve Polisi, and then we will jump straight into this session. So we might not
1: need.
0: <laughs> yeah, we do, we might not need to uh, introduce who this guy is after this video. So let's see. <laughs> Commercial property offers the highest cash flow in Australian property investing, offering exceptionally higher yields than residential. Now, we're talking 8 to 10% net yields. That's cash after all expenses, not this 2 to 6% gross that we see in the residential space. So, for those that are starting out on their commercial investing journey, it can be exciting, but it's also a step not to be taken lightly. The expertise of a commercial buyer's agent can pay dividends to help you secure that high cash flow and high growth potential property. And this is why we recommend Steve Polisi of Polisi Property. With over six years experience in the space, Steve has over 1,200 property transactions under his belt. He has seen it all and knows the best locations right for growth. In a previous life, Steve was a chartered mechanical and structural engineer, so he draws on his mathematical and analytical skills that he's developed to break down what works best in commercial property. As with engineering, same goes with commercial property. It's based primarily on the numbers. So if you're curious about diversifying into commercial property, you have access to $100,000 in cash or in equity, book a call with Steve today and find that perfect asset for you. There we go. Okay, I feel like that did a lot of the introduction for me, but I will give it a I'll give it a red hot crack. We have the Steve Polisi at Polisi Property, a property buyers agent who services many many commercial properties. And commercial property is one of those exit strategies I think that people don't actually think about. Um, This is why I have in my business commercial property is the end goal. And then we have Jordan Deong, Property Strategy King, the creator of Game Plan Strategy. Um, The two of these guys are absolute experts when it comes to property strategy. And we wanted to unpack the seven ways of exiting property because the end state is not necessarily talked about. But um, one of the questions I wanted to ask uh, is, why is having an exit strategy so important? And I guess I'll put that to you first, real Steve. Steve Placey. I'm going to change my name. <laughs> um,
2: right, so, but yes, Steve.
1: Uh, real, real Steve. Um, <laughs> for me, it's it's just to come down to what your goals are. And that's what I mentioned before. It's about like what you're trying to achieve over what time frame versus what your risk profile is. And then you marry up all of those and then basically work backwards from there of okay, with this time frame. How do I actually get there? And then the main thing is you actually have to put pen to paper. And this is Jordan's whole thing is it doesn't work if you don't write it down. You might be all right if you go out and buy a property here and there. And in 20 years' time, you've got three properties. That's still okay. But if you're trying to hit a specific target, whether a portfolio size or passive income, or even just like I I get a lot of ones where people want to pass on a property to each of their kids. So they've got two or three kids. They want to accumulate two or three properties there. So that's got nothing to do with cash flow or capital wealth. That's actually got to do with having like a property paid off that they can pass on in retirement. So it's just ev- everyone's different. Like I get some clients that are happy when they get a new fishing reel, and I get guys that are disappointed when they've just bought a Lambo after six months they get bored of it. So it just it just depends. Like I'm I'm one of those guys like I I don't need a lot. Like I don't not into fast cars and not into really fancy properties or anything like that. I drive a camper van around Australia when I'm in town. So I don't need a lot. Mine is a passive income one. It's not a net wealth. That will change when I have kids. When I have <laughs> kids, it might be a little bit of a, okay, I need something to pass on to them. Could just be passing the portfolio, but it could be, I oh, know I want to be able to live near me, so I need a deposit for the house, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's okay. You just be, be honest with yourself. Like find out what mm. makes you happy. No point doing your job for 20 years if it's not going to make you happy. Because I can tell you, a passive income won't make you happy if you're doing something you don't enjoy. 100%.
2: Yeah.
0: What about you, Jordan?
2: Yeah, I think, Steve, now, I think sometimes there can be a little correlation with the exit wording. So, a lot of people, what we're talking about today is exiting the portfolio, and sometimes there is no exit at all. But a lot of people associate that with exiting the rat race or exiting the work career or whatever it might be. So, I think, you know, that's why we sort of talk about not having that line of the sand because it's like, oh, if I work for 30 years and build a portfolio and have X passive income, I can leave my job and that's my exit strategy. Um, it's more about exactly what Steve's saying is like, put a put a plan in place, have a target. Otherwise you're just buying things for the sake of buying things, which is what I did for my first three properties. Um, know what that plan is and start to move towards it on the journey. And there's no line in the sand of this is when we retire. It might even be a plan of, okay, we might be going for a little bit more passive income. We might decide to turn down one day a week of work or two days a week of work. It's not like this work, 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 62. We retire. That's it time to exit. Um, so for me, it's more just about exactly as Steve was saying, understanding what it is that you actually want out of life. Like what is your ideal lifestyle working towards that along the, the whole journey and then slowly tapering off and, and finding where that exit works well for you.
1: Yeah, I get I get a lot of clients as well, Joe, they're, they're like, "Oh yeah, I want a 300k passive income so I can quit my job." And I'm like, "What are you doing when you quit your job? You need 300k for." And they're like, "Oh, I want to be able to travel the world." And I'm like, "You can do that on 50 grand." Like, what are you why are you working an extra 15 years for the for the sake of that? But again, it's just everyone's different. There's nothing wrong with striving for big things. If you want to be the guy with the 50 foot yacht and the fancy watches and stuff like that, and you love the hustle of that, cool, go for it. I'm a bit different. I love this relaxing, climbing mountains, rock climbing, driving a camper van around. So I don't need that much. And I won't take on as much risk like me personally. Now it's buy a PPOR and pay it off and then probably relax. I won't be one of those guys who just keeps accumulating. It'll just be chill, chill a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think you know, Steve. I think a lot of clients that I talk to, like their goal is to replace their income. So let's just say hypothetically they're earning a hundred grand a year. So their goal is to get to a passive income of a hundred grand a year. But realistically, on that hundred grand a year, they're still able to save three, four, five grand a month. So into retirement, do they still really need to be saving three, four, five grand a month, or do they just need to be paying their bills and their principal place of residence in a in a good state? Like, do they continue? Do they need to continue saving? So it might actually be you know 70 80k that they need to achieve before they exit so yeah i think yeah. i think
1: you yeah you alluded to it before as well like you don't have to quit cold cold turkey as well like you could have a 50k passive income and then just go get a slightly lower level job on 50k a year three days a week and then you've got a really cool life you work off four days and you're still making the same money and you you do have to do something like you rarely meet yeah. people who are happy doing nothing seven days a week so you either have to do a yeah. passion project get a really cool hobby or end up finding a job you actually enjoy. So you, you have to do something. Like I, I get bored sitting in a lounge chair, like in the Bahamas after two days. Like I need to be, I need to be like rock climbing or climbing a mountain or working on something or doing, writing a book or something like that. I have to do something. But again, it's just just your personality. Just just work out, just be true to yourself mainly.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's true, um, and especially for people that get to that point, right? If you have gotten to that point of passive income, you're not going to be the type of person that just sits down and relaxes and and uh, just sits on the hand and does absolutely bugger all because it's, it's just not going to jive with you because you're a go getter and has actually built a massive portfolio. What's well, the one that can sustain you at least? Yeah. yeah, spot on. So, okay, well, let's cover off. Um, why why is an exit strategy? so important for us? Like, is it, um, is it a must or a maybe? Do we have to kind of think about our exit strategies or is this something that we can just kind of have a bit of a bit of a handle on? Like how important is having this exit strategy for us?
1: Yeah, so for, for me, the answer is yes to both, depending on who you are. If you are fairly comfortable in your life and you've got a nice steady job and kids and house and you're paying off your PPR, you don't need a strategy necessarily. You might just be buying a property for some future wealth. And that that's fine. Like not everyone's like you mentioned before, Joe, like all, all three of us in this kind of video, we're all go-getters. Like we we didn't build a big portfolio from not looking on real every night till one a.m. for a few years. So like we're we're that type of so but the other ones, it's just for some more comfort in retirement. This gives them more options. However, if you've got something that's quite large in terms of goals then yes, it's a must. And Jordan said it before, you're just kind of buying properties at the start for the sake of buying it. I did as well. I bought most of my duds were the ones I just bought because I thought they were a good deal and they weren't really fitting in the strategy and my borrowing capacity. So uh, if, you, if you've if got some big goals, you have to have some form of strategy because if you buy the wrong one or two properties at the start, it's going to tangle out for a while.
0: Yeah, that's such a, that's such a great point because that is ultimately what you're trying to balance. You're trying to balance your cash And equity that you have on hand and balance that with your borrowing capacity. Because like, this is one of the things that we have when we have a strategy session, it is saying, oh, I've got an $800,000 borrowing capacity. The bank said I can lend that much. Well, you probably shouldn't go out and get an $800,000 property and use 100% of that borrowing capacity. It might be better to split it up. Um, And that's what I love about Jordan, your platform about when it comes to you can run the scenarios to see what happens if you buy an eight hundred thousand dollar property that only has a three percent yield, or two four hundred thousand dollar properties that have a five percent yield, um, but have a, a slightly lesser growth. What does that look like over over the long term? Um, yeah, yeah,
2: I'm I'm exactly the same. I think yes to both, and I think you you really do want to have that longer term picture. Like I'm I'm an advocate for buying property like from the get-go I think it's fine if you want to go out and buy a property but why are you going to buy that property and and understanding the decisions that you're making exactly how you just mentioned there Joe is like okay do we do we buy one really great blue chip asset and utilize our maximum borrowing capacity or do we potentially split it up into two and get to two and get some high yielding properties and it may seem like a small consequence today like it might seem one or the other today it might seem like a benefit of I get a bit more cash flow today in my back pocket. So I'm not as burdensome to interest rate movements that we're going through lately. But how does that impact over 30 years? And this is a lot. This is what we do with clients a lot is sort of mapping that out. And so if you make that decision of the blue chip high growth property and it grows at, let's just call it 7%, compared to something that grows at, let's call it 5%, but has a much better yield, yes, they might be, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 grand better off today. Yes, they might be. 30, 40 grand better off in 30 years, but it comes at the cost of a million, $2 million worth of equity over that period. So these small decisions that we make today really do compound and have a massive impact over that longer term period. So if we don't know and understand what we're, the decisions that we're making today are going to impact us in 30 years, then what, what, what's the point that we're doing it for? So um, I'm a big advocate of the strategy always changes as Steve touched on before, my biggest light bulb moment was when I had my daughter and my whole philosophy on like what I wanted to do and what I wanted out of a portfolio changed. And people are going to go through that. I guarantee you I'll go through a different one later on. Like I might want to, I might get to 40 and go, I just want to retire and go hard passive income. Like different phases of life will change. And that's okay, I think. But it's really just understanding, well, where are we going to now? What are we working towards now? What are we on the path to achieving now? And if things do change, if our emotions change, if our idea and concepts change, let's adjust and move as we start to go along as well.
1: You you also need to balance, like we're talking those long-term goals with the the short-term. And this this is every investor's biggest thing at the moment is borrowing capacity. So that's mm. where you're gonna, you mentioned like, okay, say you've got 800K. You need to work out, okay, what happens if I actually buy an 800K? What's the ramifications of my capacity after that? And if it's sit on your hands for five years hoping for some rental increases, capital growth, or your income increases, that might yeah. not be a good option. And then that might actually guide your decision whether you go a pure cash flow one, like a commercial, or a capital growth play as well. So, And that, that's that's also where I come in for the commercial side of things because people people know they're getting to their glass ceiling in terms of borrowing capacity, and commercial does have some options to get around that because you've got lease stock loans and things like that. So that's part of marrying up the short term with the long-term strategy. 100%.
0: Okay, great. Well, let's start going into these seven exit strategies because, Steve, you've identified seven strategies that are going to allow you to exit on property. The first one we've got here is keeping all of your properties and not paying down the debt. Can you talk to that?
1: Yeah. So, so I've just tried to summarize like, just the general overview, seven kind of strategies that most people use. There are some other ones like you can be a developer and all that type of stuff, but these are just the, the kind of outline ones. So that is basically accumulating your portfolio and it's normally a self-sustaining one. So it's obviously not going to be highly negatively geared because you're not going to retire from that. So you normally got some passive income from it and then just leaving it, just letting it come of keep paying off the P&I typically and then leaving the capital. thing. The benefit of that is you've got a bigger portfolio because like you've got more assets, you've got more cash flow and you get inflation over time to help grow the portfolio and you keep the capital growth as opposed to selling and transitioning and things like that. You keep it. You also save on the exit and entry costs. So if you're trying to replace the property, you don't have to, you're not paying stamp duty again. You're not paying real estate selling fees of 2%. You're not paying the stamp duty again on the property you place it with. So you're saving 10% there. So it's just the, Jordan actually gave me a note on this. We went through this before the call. He calls it the natural exit, which I quite like. Mm. Um, it's, it's a riskier play. So, like, because you do have, like, a large amount of debt, so you're more subject to, like, interest rate movements. Uh, And then you also just typically can't, like, refi. Like, you're not going to be able to go interest only for the rest of your life because the banks, you're not going to be able to service that debt. So you typically have to be P&I as you kind of go on. Um, And this is going to be a recurring theme throughout all these strategies. Speak with your broker and speak with your accountant because they're the biggest parts of exit strategy. Your broker, obviously, for what type of finance that you're going to have on the property and when you're going to shift to PI or not pay down debt and things like that. And your accountant for the structures that you're buying under, because there's obviously tax ramifications for selling properties and transitioning them. And especially when you start talking big passive incomes, then there's tax, obviously, on passive income. And that's where you buy under family trusts and disperse profits to beneficiaries and all that. So, this is, mm. we, we always rub it on about this in part of the group. You need the yeah. team. It's not just buy good quality, but I can buy you the best quality property in the world. But if you buy it under the wrong structure or one wrong loan, you can shoot yourself in the foot for five years.
0: Yeah. And also, if you want to hand that property over to someone, you have to consider structures as well, because you can't just say, Oh, I'm going to give this to my son. They're going to have to go under their name on the title if you've just bought it as an individual and then you've got to pay stamp duty again. Like if, with a trust, you've got versatility. But obviously, yeah, speak to your professionals and, and then, go and through Some high
1: net worth investors, they buy under company structures as well because they've got enough income from it that it can service itself. And then there's there's mm. options there. They run it like a business. So a lot of my high net worth guys, their property investing is a business. So they've, mm. they've got different structures there. So everyone's different, but that's that's just the the big one. Everyone buys the properties and then they just let it kind of the LVR erode over time and it just kind of self-fulfils self, self fulfills itself. But um, Jordan, do you got any comments on that one?
2: Yeah, I really like this one. It's probably my favorite one out of, out of all of them. And you're right. Like I call it a natural exit because it is natural. Like there's no forced, like you have to pay your debt off. There's no forced line in the sand of this is what's going to happen. It's accumulate the portfolio and then let time do its thing. Um, obviously sort of like no financial advice. I don't do Joe, do you like to disclaim or anything? But like I, I personally l- like having good debt um, because it gets inflated away. So Savings in a bank account gets inflated away, where debt is actually money that you owe to a lender, and so the lender has to cop that inflation on the way out. So today's you know dollar that you have to pay back in ten years might only be worth fifty cents or whatever it might be, and that's not that much exactly, but um, it, it becomes less over time. So I personally like going debt. The only thing and such, you know, it's such a great that's such a great point that I think is somewhat overlooked. If I had five
0: hundred thousand dollars and I stuff that under my mattress, I would get I would get yelled at by everyone because everyone knows inflation eats away assets. But that's exactly what you're doing when you're getting $500,000 worth of debt. You're stuffing it, you're giving it, the bank has given that to you and it's stuffing under their mattress instead of yours. So that money is going to get eroded by inflation. Yeah, yeah and
2: can... the okay. other benefit that is if, if you're in an interest rate environment like we're in today where, and in, in an economic environment, I should say, where you know, let's just call interest rates at 5%, but headline inflation, and it's complete rubbish, but headline inflation is 6.7%. Money is actually getting inflated away faster than you're making, faster than the amount that you have to make for repayments. So yes, you have to pay the bank 5% in interest repayments, but it's getting inflated away at 6.7%. So theoretically, you're actually gaining 1.5% per annum on your loan or or the money that you're lending. So as long as you can comfortably make those repayments, make those interest repayments and not put yourself in a financial situation. That's awkward. You're actually not on paper, but theoretically making yourself money as time goes on.
1: Yeah, One, one of the big risks for this strategy for me is interest rates can obviously harm your lifestyle quite a lot. Like if you'd, if you'd say you had a 50K passive income from your portfolio because you're not paying down the debt three years ago and you're paying one9 or 2.2% interest rate on the loan, now, if you didn't have rental increases on that property portfolio, and you're now paying six percent, that's all of a sudden going to drop from fifty to, um, I'm thumbing, like fifteen k, for instance. So, if you're relying on that on retirement, all of a sudden you've gone from passive income you can live off to, well, struggle street. So that's that's the big risk with keeping it and not paying down the debt. So you need to make sure you have got that buffer in place, like with the LVR and interest rates, that you can kind of handle it. Same thing for maintenance and vacancy periods and all that. You need to be able to take that into account and handle it if your roof collapses on a couple of your properties and things like that.
2: Yeah, and on the um, the interest rate point there, Steve, as well. Like I know a lot of a lot of people I talk to like to stay interest only on their portfolio as they're continuing to go along. Um, but with that natural natural exit, if if you don't have income, if you like retire and you don't have that income coming through at some point or at some age, the banks are going to say you can't refinance onto interest only. And so you may have to roll to P&I. And again, that's going to increase the repayments that you have to make. So it's just one of those things, again, it's a nice natural exit. There's no sort of force line in the sand, but it's something you do have to plan around around, okay, if I do stop having a certain amount of income or if I go cold turkey and just retire on the spot, am I going to have enough finance or enough income or passive income from the portfolio to sustain not only a P&I rollover if I'm not on P&I already, Plus interest rates movements, if they were to go up or down two or three percent, and just make sure you're comfortable from that standpoint.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very unlikely you're going to go in this strategy with a ninety percent OVR. Like yeah. if you get retirement age, it's, it's going uh, to be a fifty to seventy percent kind of most likely with that kind of good buffer. Um, but again, everyone's circumstance is different. Don't sue us, not financial advisors. Yada yada.
0: Yeah, I pop the disclaimer up. I think that counts. Thanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. Well. <laughs>
1: I always hear yeah. people say not financial advice. Do you guys actually know anyone who's ever been sued for financial advice when they're not receiving money from someone? Like, <laughs>
0: Not yet. <laughs> so I don't want like, to be the first. Who <laughs> <laughs> was property? We don't have, we don't have the funds. <laughs> um, number two, keeping all your properties but paying down the debt. So this is a bit of an interesting one. So we're now looking at when we're putting debt into the equation and we're starting to pay that stuff down. Um what what does that look like, Steve? Give us a run through.
1: Yeah. So same, same as before, but you're either physically putting cash savings into the portfolio to pay it down a bit quicker, or like John said, beyond P and I. It rolls over to P and I and then you can plan from that point, okay, I'm gonna be debt free in 10 years' time, 15 years, 20 times. And that, that's the biggest thing for this one is you can actually plan it really, really well because you know how much money you can put into it and what the P&I repayments are over what time frame. So you can get a kind of definitive line in the sand of exit, exit date, we'll call it. Um, so this, this is most people's exit strategy. Like 90% of investors will have it, they'll switch to P&I and then they'll pay it down. And you can phase into retirement because obviously as you're paying down, your, your actual passive income increases as well. So it's just it's, it's the the usual typical one that everyone kind of does. Uh, and then you can also kind of stage things with like the accountant as well. So like you slowly build an into it as you're, as you start retiring and your actual income starts decreasing, you can start increasing your passive income. So you kind of manage the tax brackets that way as well.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. What are some of the pros and cons of this one, Jordan?
2: Yeah, so this is what I like to call eliminating with cash. Um, as Steve said, it's either like a hard cash dump into paying off the debt or paying PI. Um, so, some of the pros that I wrote down is it, it's kind of a, a risk free retirement. Like, you're not susceptible to those interest rate movements or massive PI rollovers into retirement. Apart from like potential sort of major building defects that might come up and cost a bit, like, you, you're essentially risk free without debt. Um, as Steve said, it can be planned really, really well. Like you, how you do have that line in the sand and can calculate how long it will take you to pay off. Um, and still have to pay tax on, on the rental income. So, um, yeah, just, that's probably actually one of the cons is you have to pay tax on that rental income that comes through as you start to go through. There's no, like with the Mm -hmm. um, previous scenario, you do have the debt and the tax deductions on investment debt. So, um, you get a bit of a win-win there, but you know, heading into retirement with a rental income, you still have to pay those taxes. Um, of so the other cons is it's it can be a bit of a long runway to pay off that debt completely. So um, if you know like you've got this this time period or this line in the sand, it, it could be sort of like 10, 15, 20 years away and some people might have to continue to stay working over that period to pay it off completely before they go, I'm comfortable, the debt's paid off, I can retire now. Um they do lose out on the inflation eating away at debt. So same scenario before, but you don't have any debt going into retirement, which is less risky, but at the same time, you don't have inflation eating away at that. Um, if you are using savings or you do have um, rental income coming through going into a savings account, obviously you're losing inflation on that on an annual basis as well. Um, and then yeah, you don't get any tax deductions on, on the debt. So yeah, there's some pros and cons that I... Battle through
1: one one yeah. of the points you mentioned there about the, the long runway um that's that's also where commercial property can actually come in because with residential like not not many people pay off i know there's some gurus out there so pay off it in 10 years etc etc just run a mile when anyone says that for residential with commercial you actually can pay off quite reasonably in 10 15 years so you can actually shorten that runway by throwing a few commercial properties into your portfolio. And remove the risk of commercial that is long periods of vacancy. So that's that's where the actual planning comes in. Because if you don't want to have a 20-year plan and you want to shorten it to say 10 or 15, high yielding properties might might come into play. You might buy a house in Granny Flat or a little duplex or block of apartments or a commercial property just to fast track that one if you can't put that additional savings in yourself.
0: Yeah. And well that's when is the when does commercial come into a, a strategy like i guess what you're saying steve is it can come in at any point and of course but typically speaking i guess i don't i don't know how to ask the question but um where 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 do, is it normally see because I, I the way we kind of build out portfolios we see people accumulate their their riches and their net wealth in residential and then they like well how do i unlock this and then they unlock it through commercial property um, yeah. So yeah.
1: The, the whole power of property is leveraging, like no other asset class will they go give you 80, 90% of someone else's money to go play gamble, gamble the market kind of thing. And that's 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 a part of the decision of when you go commercial, because residential, you can get away with 90% loans and you pay lenders mortgage insurance. There, there are a couple lenders doing 80% for, for commercial, but most do 70%, so you need 30% deposit. So that's why you mentioned accumulation. I would much rather, if I was a low-risk 25-year-old person, investor, I'd rather go buy three residential properties on 90% loans versus one commercial on a 70% because if I get the same capital growth, I make three times as much with the the resi portfolio. In addition, commercial actually has about three times more rent than a resi, but I've got three times more resi. So I can actually start getting on par with passive incomes because I've got a larger portfolio. So where, where it's right for you is when you're kind of running out of borrowing capacity. So if, you, if you'll start looking and you go, oh, I've got a 1.5 mil resi capacity but only a 600K commercial, cool, resi is probably the right option for you. If you start looking at those numbers and because you're based on serviceability, you can't borrow a resi anymore but you've got the same borrowing capacity for commercial, might be worth looking at then. I had a client yesterday, they got a mil resi capability but 3.2 mil commercial capacity because they've got the funds there, they just can't leverage it with full doc, so they can go lease dock and they've actually got a much bigger borrowing capacity for commercial. So there's the option there. And then you just marry that up with what you're trying to achieve. And this is the whole planning side of things. Me, like if I've got a 65-year-old client, buying a neutrally geared residential property doesn't really help their strategy. Like they want mm. they a retirement fund, so they have to be commercial. So you just got to find that point. Most people buy when they start kind of accumulated two or three properties and they're at the serviceability limit or they're mentally starting to switch on to, okay, I want a passive income in five, 10 years time. How do I get there? Resi's not going to give it to me for 10, 15 years.
2: Yeah, the way I I, I typically explain this as a bit of an overview, high level, is there's kind of like three stages that we go through when accumulating a portfolio. So first stage, as Steve mentioned, is always sort of an equity focus or growth focus. And the reason we do that is because obviously the compound effect and over time, that's where you're going to generate your most wealth. But additionally, from that wealth and and growth, you can extract that equity and use that equity as deposits for future purchases, which for people getting started is generally the hardest thing is saving enough money to be able to get in and then continuing to have that savings moving forward. The second stage that we go through is something that I call momentum and and it really depends on where everyone is. But in the momentum stage, we're still looking for growth-focused assets, again, because that's where long-term you're going to get grow your most wealth. But at the same time, we're looking for either sort of a neutral or, or passive or positively geared property where it's self-sustaining, it's building momentum within the portfolio and allowing things to continue to grow. Now, for someone who has a really, really high income, maybe from you know a, a great job or their own business, they might decide we still want to go growth-focused. We'll pay for the portfolio from our business, but over the long run, we're going to get the capital growth. So we're really happy with that. Alternatively, you might have someone who's like, we just want to retire in the next 10 years. We just want to go heavy passive income and, and go from that side. So it really comes down to a client's goals and risk profile. But then Steve nailed it. Once you've gone through that um, equity or growth phase, the momentum phase, and then you kind of capped and there's no more borrowing capacity that's when you start looking to get into that like heavy passive income assets and starting to replace incomes. And that's when you go that that different type of lending route where you can get access to other lending avenues to allow you to continue building the portfolio. So, so one of the questions that, that
0: kind of comes up is, but how do I transition that I've got five residential properties right now? How do I actually turn that into commercial? Do I sell down? Do I leverage, like how do I actually buy another commercial property and what does, what does that look like?
1: Yep. So we'll get onto that on strategy number four, Joe.
0: Ooh, so. Okay. Well, where are we at? We're at no- number three. Strategy okay. number three, keeping all properties and increasing the debt. What the hell are you guys playing at? We can't increase the debt when we've got more debt. This is this is not an exit strategy. This is this is a maniacs. What are we doing? Can you explain this? <laughs> it
1: doesn't sound as crazy as it actually looks. So because you're not, you're not going to be going from an 80% to a 90% kind of thing. This is where like you might have a low LVR. And don't get me wrong, this is a risky strategy. I don't recommend it for, for most people. But say you've got like, I don't know, a 40% LVR. Like there's lots of people that, or they've got their PPOR paid off. So they've got that paid off. And then they actually want some funds for retirement. They might actually pull out 20 or 30% of the actual property equity And use that for the holidays and the cars and the families or the passing on a deposit to their kids and things like that because they can still effectively, like if they've got a residential property or commercial property, manage that if they want to pay it down later or just live off it. And inflation and growth will do its thing. It will actually erode that anyway. So if you increase your debt to, say, 30 or 50%, in 10 years' time, the LVR is probably back down to 25% or zero. So you can kind of manage that So it, it is a high risk strategy, but it gives you a big influx of cash effectively you can start spending. The benefit of it is you keep your portfolio. So similar to strategy one, you get your whole portfolio. So you still get all the future capital growth and you might not just have the passive income that you wanted, but it still gives, it lets you keep that portfolio. So it does sound crazy, but it's not like, I'm not saying, oh, when you're an 80% LVR, just keep refinancing at 80% Thanks for let that happen anyway if you're planning retirement. So we're talking generally lower LVRs.
0: Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. It cleans it up a little bit for me. Jordan, what are some of the pros and cons of this one?
2: Yeah, I um I love that Steve like, clarified that because I've heard some crazy stories of people just like continuing to refinance as they go along. So it is definitely a riskier strategy if you go down that route. But uh limited pros here. But the two pros that I had is that you get that full utilization of the debt inflation as you start to, as you refinance and pull that debt back out into retirement. Um, and then there's no tax deduction or I don't think no, no tax advice, but, um, there's no tax on that borrowable equity. So instead of like potentially selling a property where you'd have to pay capital gains tax and you realize your position, if you're pulling out borrowable equity, you don't necessarily have to pay tax on it. Um, so the two of the pros and then the cons again, very risky strategy. Um, it does rely on capital growth of the property, unless you're in that situation that Steve was saying, where you had a low LVR and you pulled out 20 or 30% in your principal place of residence. If you're doing that strategy where you're going back to 60, 70, 80% every single time, it does require the growth of your portfolio to continue pulling it back out. Um, it's probably a lot less common these days. I used to hear about it, not commonly, but I used to hear about it a lot back in the day. Um, yeah. Well, the environment was was really different. Like you you were able to just continue lending, and there was I don't know ninja loans and no doc loans and like all this stuff back in the day, which um, made it a whole lot easier. But we're in a different environment these days, and it's not uh, not very common. Uh, as Steve said, banks will say no more at some point once you get to either having no income coming through and trying to refinance, or you get to a certain age. Um, there's a risk that if you pulled out equity and you had to sell your property for a financial situation in a down market, you could potentially be in negative equity, which is never a good position to be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're always subject to interest rate movements in this scenario. Um, if you are continuously pulling out equity, you know government or you know regulators like APRA could change policies at any time. So the strategy might not always work for you moving forward. Um, and it's not a great play for generational wealth as well. Like if you wanted to hand over a legacy to the kids, you're giving them a four million dollar property but it comes with three and a half million dollars with debt uh it's not really the 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 best generational play to to hand over to them so yeah a few more cons than pros there but i think steve's approach and you know just taking a little bit of funds out of a principal place of residence might be a way if someone wanted to to, to hold on to their portfolio into retirement
1: yeah it doesn't necessarily have to be pulling it out as well sometimes like a, a parental guarantee for your children's house is effectively the same thing. It's the same net result. You just someone else is using the money for it, like you're kind of backing someone else. Um, John said you don't really see it in Resi anymore. You still see it a bit in commercial with like lease doc and low doc kind of loans where say say you've got a commercial property and it's paid off, you might go on like a no-doc loan and get it on a 50% of because it's still cash flow positive, but you've got these funds to actually live off and travel and things like that. Because you you do have to realize the money somewhere. And this is the part of the every single strategy, you have to realize the property income somewhere, whether it comes from rent or the equity. That's that's This is the whole thing with strategy. They're the two things you balance and that's how you actually get the lifestyle that you want.
0: Love that. Um, here's a question that's coming. in. Anyone who's got any questions, throw them in as we go along as well. It's super valuable. And he said, do you guys have any thoughts on living off a line of credit, which I think is talking to this exact strategy.
1: Spot on. It's exactly what we just spoke about. Yeah, actually a line of credit is... Yeah, it's you pulling out the equity and using it to live off. So pe- people do yeah. do it. It's not, it's not yeah. regis, but like, like me and Jordan said, it's not, you're not doing it at 80% kind of thing. And if you're spending if the banks are giving you that LVR and you are spending it, you're asking for trouble. Like they most of the time they give you that line of credit based on the premise you have to buy an investment property. And I know it's easy to say, yep, I'm buying an investment property and they give you the line of credit. However, like if you spend it and the market goes bad, like markets drops 10% or something like that, you lose your job, you you can burn your fingers very easily.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's what someone says, I always thought it'd be difficult refinancing with no job or income. So if you are looking to use this as your retirement, um, there are some people that rave about this as a strategy. In their, Like there was this this comment here, Michael Yardney he raves about it in his books. Yes, that was a book that was written many, many years ago. Um, so that strategy is now not, no longer relevant. And this is why... This is why um, it's so important not to have a static piece of paper strategy, like the strategy that that would have been written in this book in in two thousand and one. If you're still using that playbook, it just doesn't work anymore. You have to have the dynamic, tech-enabled platform like Jordan does. I'm not trying to push you here, I'm not trying to push Jordan here, but I think it's so crucially important to have something that updates and changes with with the situation that changes and the the rules that change. The debt-to-income ratios are going to be shifting in 20 years' time as they had in the last 20 years when we had low-doc and no-doc lock uh, no dock loans for re- comm- uh, residential. Got them in commercial still. Um, but that's probably going to change at some stage as well and you have to be dynamic in your approach.
1: Well, one of um, the things you know, that people always get confused about what banks are willing and not willing to do I just look at it at the point of view is they're protecting their money. That's, that's it. So when people go, oh, yeah, but they're not going to service you if you don't have an income. Yeah, of course not, because they're worried if you lose if you don't have an income and the property goes bad, they do it from there. But that's also why they balance the LVR. And that's, that's actually why with commercial you need a bigger deposit because they know if your tenant leaves, the property might be worth 20% less. They can still do a quick fire sale and get their money back. It's also the whole premise of lender's mortgage insurance you are actually getting an insurance based on that you can't pay that thing and the property price drops more than say 10%. So that's the whole premise of the actual insurance. So if you look at it from the point of view of banks are just protecting their asset. So they either wanna see a stable job or you have an income or the portfolio have an income. If that's not positive, then the LVR will be the thing that balances it. They wanna see really low LVR so they can do the file sale and flip the property. And then that that normally answers 80% of the questions with lending.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. love that. Okay, strategy number four, selling part of your portfolio to pay down debt. Steve Polisi, what does this mean?,
1: All right, So basically what you said, so you're actually selling some of the properties and then paying off the, the bulk of the debt. And this is what you alluded to before if you're be like, oh, when do I transition to commercial? Do I sell a property? Do I try to buy one and keep it? this This is a lot of people's strategy, and to me also, it sounds like it's your strategy as well, Joe. You're going to build your, your, your residential base and then sell a couple of the properties and maybe transition. Hopefully not. If you can keep your base and still get commercial for that passive income, then you get the best of both worlds, like strategy number one and two. But this is where you kind of make the decision. As I mentioned before, transitioning properties is an expensive exercise. You've paid stamp duty on the property that you're selling. You're paying the agent 2% selling costs and you're spending stamp duty on the next property as well. So there's like a 10% swing to kind of do it. But it's, it's just a lower risk strategy because you can actually pay down the whole debt. There actually is not much risk. If you've got a good passive income, besides vacancy and maintenance, they're the only real risk because there's no more interest rate, inflations and things like that. It's just a nice little one. A lot of people will sell some of their properties, the residential ones, that they feel have had their good run. So like if mm. they've got... Sydney property and it's just double-digit growth for five years and they think they're kind of at the end, they might go, okay, I don't think I'm going to get that much capital growth in the next five years, and they might transition into like a commercial or um, some of the other ones is actually like sell off some properties and then use some of that profit and put it into some granny flats as well because that'll actually help pay off the debt quicker as well. And as we keep saying, it's not a fixed rule. There are a thousand ways to skin the cat. You can do it staged. You can do it all in one go. It just depends on the actual person itself. But for me, this is just a good kind of low risk one. Um, and then a lot of people paid off the debt and then they've got that income and they can support their kids, lifestyle, family and all that type of thing.
0: Yeah. And this one is My favorite strategy, but you also got to think about it with the type of asset that you're buying. So, a lot of the assets that I like to buy um, are properties that are not their end value, they're not the end product. So, I buy a property that has a house at the front and it's large enough land that can be subdivided. So, I then have optionality and I'm not buying the total end product. I'm not buying a unit, I'm not buying a townhouse. I'm building townhouses, I'm building units on it. So you can then have a choice of saying, hey, I'll keep the front house, but I'll sell off the land to pay down the debt on the front house, which is then going to, or take that capital and then go into commercial or build a house on the back as well and sell both and then transition into commercial or then just use the equity because there's so much equity already in my portfolio that um, I can then transition into this more cash flow." type of asset as well. Um, yeah. So much, so much optionality with that. I really like the,
2: the modern take that we put onto this one as well. Like, I don't know if the person reading the old Mark, we books probably knows about th- this as well, but it's a, it's a common one that used to come up with that whole um, process of like buy 10 properties, then yes. f- sell five to pay off the other five. Um, and that used to be like really easy and simple, not easy, but like easier to do back in the day where, now, as we keep mentioning, like we're all limited to, to our borrowing capacity. And so it becomes a little bit harder to just go, yeah, I'm going to buy 10 and then sell five of them. We're actually limited to just the five. And so what I really like about this modern twist, and I'll just transition into the pros and cons because I'm really smooth like that, um, is, that is that you, you can, um, you can like, choose that specific property in your portfolio that you know you're going to sell. It's like, you know, it's going to be like a blue chip asset. It's purely growth focused. You're allowing that capital growth to do that heavy lifting over time. And then at some point in time, you know, you're going to sell that asset and eliminate most or some of the debt within your portfolio. So it can be planned and executed really well. Again, it's that sort of risk-free retirement. So we're heading into retirement with no debt or minimum debt left in the portfolio. Um, And we're not forced to keep saving or working for a long period of time, apart from if you went sort of commercial and sex shaved on that, um, to, to pay off the debt of the remaining portfolio. So, you know, if you had a period allocated of 10 years, we're just going to work and pay off the portfolio, you might be able to get to year four or year six and go, okay, now we can actually sell this property and pay off the remainder of our debt. So you're not forced to keep working. Um, some of the cons though is obviously you have the loss of that potential passive income that you've, lost from the sold property. So you are losing a source of income. Um, as Steve said, you've got those sales and exiting costs, transaction so, costs and properties.
1: Also the growth as well, because you've got rid of that property. If you get it wrong and it doubles in the next 10 years, you've lost that as well.
2: Nailed it. Nailed it. Um, then you've got the exiting costs. You lose out on that inflation either way, as I keep going banging on about. Um, and yeah, it's pretty much my pros and cons.
0: Yeah. I love that. I think that's, I mean, is this the most, well, actually, no, this isn't the most typical. No, is this the typical that we see, the the probably biggest?
1: The between this one and the last one, just depending on kind of who you are. And to be honest, it sounds bad. Like demographics and age of people kind of changes. And this is what John said. We're putting a modern twist on it. Um, our parents and the older kind of generations, they're, they're a bit different. They are probably more of selling part of the property and paying down the debt and things like that. Or, the, or the next one, which we'll, we'll go into as well.
0: Yeah. Nice. Okay. Well, let's um, just before we jump into that, we have to jump into our uh, next um, post. So we have th- how many we got? We got three left, and then uh, three of the seven strategies left of how to exit your portfolio, and then we are going to cover off. Um, on the platform jordan you've created these mo- you've modeled out these strategies so if anyone's keen on seeing those let us know in the comments um but we're going to go through how these work and how to actually exit out what it looks like in the real world um so let's do that mm-hmm. There's nothing worse than going into a situation unprepared, especially when that situation is purchasing one of the most expensive assets of your life against a trained property expert in the form of a real estate agent. It's a scary thought, but it is a skill that can be taught. Do you want to learn how to become fully prepared when buying a property so you can get out there, buy your dream home or investment property without the fear of actually messing it up? Scott Aggett, the founder and expert property negotiator at Hello House has been helping people buy their properties by stepping in and negotiating with the agents and saving his clients 10s of 1000s, and in some cases, hundreds of 1000s of dollars. Scott has now decided to share all that he's learned over the past 28 years in real estate. So you can go out there and do the exact same thing on how to find a property, analyze that property, negotiate on that property and transact on it to get the best results. He's created the Get Buyer Ready course, which is a step-by-step guide on how you too can become an expert property negotiator. It's the easy way of how you can avoid all of these agent games and get the best purchase price on that dream home or your investment property. The course is in short bites for busy people with no fluff at all. Just all the information you need to get buyer ready and secure that next property with confidence at the best price. Scott has been kind enough to give our community a massive discount with the link below. Sign up today before you even think about putting an offer on that next property. And it will be one of the best decisions you ever make. Here we go. Mm, He's back. back. Okay. There we go. That's the new ad for for, for Scott. So if anyone liked that, let us know. (laughs) If anyone hated it, (laughs) let us know. Um, (laughs) okay here we go i feel like this comments aimed at you steve we've got a little comment here can living in a van asking for the bank for a mortgage to buy another property and live off that passive income be an exit portfolio will the bank allow us to borrow well actually that isn't aimed at you that is someone else's question (laughs)
1: living in a van and asking the bank for a mortgage to buy another house and live off that passive income be an exit portfolio Yes, but they're going to look at that that income that you're getting off that, that property as just income. So they're going to treat that the same way as effectively a job. And this this is the whole serviceability calculation. They look at what income you get from whether that be your actual job or your property portfolio. Then they slap on their interest rate buffers of one75 to 3.5% or whatever it may be. Then they take like 20% of the rent that you're getting on your property portfolio and they take that off. And they go, can you afford that? Then they'll look at your know, capacity in terms of like your risk profile, like what your job at it is, and things like that, and credit checks and all that type of stuff. So, yes, if you've got a big enough passive income, but they, the banks don't really care if you're living in a van or at your parents' house or whatever. It's the same same net result. Like you, you, still need a registered address. But yeah, it's just it's the same situation. It's just like living rent free somewhere.
0: Mm, yeah, they they would just count it like you're living at your parents' right. Um, they're not, not going to care. Okay,
1: cool. Google, uh, registered address though. Like that's a thing. And like I, I typically I put my, my, my dad's address. So that's the one. And then I've recently done a refinance and he had to write a letter saying, yes, he doesn't pay rent when he lives here.
0: There you go. There you go. Um, okay, cool. We have three other exit strategies that are a part of building out your portfolio, but actually getting out of it. So what is number five, selling parts of your portfolio and living off the profit?
1: So this this is exactly the same as the last one, but instead of using that profit to pay down the debt, you're actually using that profit just to actually live off. So you're not paying down the debt. So it's, mm. it's sort of assuming that your current debt portfolio is positively geared. So it's kind of looking after itself or paying itself down. Otherwise, obviously, the banks aren't going to let you do that. The reason why you might live off the profit is some people just want to have their effort moment where they just – go off and travel the world for two years or something like that. Like, you know, most retirees, like they'll retire and then they go to their Europe trip and they go spend yeah. 50, 50 on that. That's sort of what it's getting at. It's not, okay, you're not putting 50 grand back into your portfolio. You need that cut, halt cut, cold, hard cash to actually do something. And a lot of people just set themselves up for retirement. So they'll, they'll buy like their boat and then they'll have their holidays planned and they can do that. But same as above, it's just a little bit riskier because you've still got obviously the debt. And you're gonna lose some of that because you're not paying down the debt. So
0: Yeah, yes.
1: So, like if, if you actually you wanna capture for, for do what they wanna do.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, you broke up a little bit there, mate. But um, Jordan, what are some of the pros and cons of this beautiful yeah,
2: strategy? Pretty much a, a, the same thing as the the previous one. So you're allowing capital growth to do the heavy lifting. You can purchase specific properties to help you build that sort of um, exit strategy and, and and living off the profit. Again, it can be planned and executed really well. And it's probably a bit, a bit more riskier than the previous one that... The cons are the same as well. I guess one of the, the, the bigger cons with this is obviously you've got, as Steve mentioned, less passive income coming through from the portfolio. And like, it's great that you've got this lump sum of cash just sitting there that you can chip away at. The problem with chipping away at cash is that even if the portfolio is self-sustaining, which I think is important, you still have living expenses. So if, over time, if you don't have enough in there and you're, you're chipping away with your living expenses at this cash, at some point in time, something's got to give. So um, you just want to make sure you've got enough in there with the profit and the cash to sustain however long retirement might be. And that's one of the funny things as well is you kind of see these people retiring at 62 and then they've still got 30 years before they actually cark it. So like you got to like, it's a lot It's a lot of time to have to sustain yourself, especially when you have inflation and everything else coming into play with it. So um, yeah, it's just about making sure you, you're setting yourself up for that longer term period. And uh, as I keep saying, like, it, it doesn't have to be that line of the sand. Now we're going to sell five properties of the portfolio. You can, you can sell like one at a time. Like you might sell one every five years and let the growth and the income come through as you start to go along. But as long as you know from the start that the get go was we're going to be potentially selling these properties as we head into retirement.
1: Yeah, there, there are some tax minimization benefits of doing that as well when you stage it as well because if you sell them all in one go, then you've got the, obviously the huge capital gains bill. But if you can kind of, mm. you've got the right structures in place. And again, we said this at the start, having the right accountant planning this stuff out with you is really important because you can minimise some of the tax there. Um, but like John, you've made a really good point of people also don't know how long retirement is. So that's, that's where having a passive income helps and especially if you've still got some assets as well like property you always move with the market because if rents go up guess what your your passive income goes up with it if rents go down so will your rent as well where you're living so you can always kind of stay with the market um but that's mm. a segue into the next one joe right. which is basically selling the whole portfolio selling
0: Isn't the cool? whole thing the whole kit caboodle why the hell would we want to sell all of it
1: well, so I'm just going through some of Jordan's points here they wrote out. But like the biggest one is you actually just want to have an extravagant lifestyle. Um, and you might hate your kids. You're like, stuff your kids. I'm going to keep all this That's money, a go good. buy my Ferrari and travel around on my yacht. Uh, but it just gives you the whole thing. But like I said, planning for retirement is tough because I actually have no idea if I retire at age 65 or 70, or whatever it may be, if I'm going to live to 80 or I'm going to live to 110. Like modern medicine mm. might keep going. So that's what I like about property, whereas this one gets rid of that. Sometimes yeah. people do this and they sell the hot portfolio and they realize that they're not necessarily just having the money sitting in a bank account and they're going, oh, yeah, I'm just going to chip away at this for the next 30 years. There are very low-risk investments, and I'm not not going to go too much into it because I'm not a financial advisor, but you can buy certain investments that are just kind of low-risk and they try to match inflation, and then you just kind of live out your time over over the thing. But a lot of the times – you'll actually see parents do this when they're trying to buy and they shift the funds into their children. So they'll actually give their kids all the deposits for their houses and things like that. So it's not, not necessarily just like, Oh, I'm going to spend all this money. It's using it some wisely, but um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with this strategy. You just lose out on all the capital growth and you lose the passive income in quotations marks that you would have had from all the other strategies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And like if you are selling down the whole portfolio and just, like having a big lump sum sat into your bank account, it's not really doing as much as you you can. But also on the same token, if you just want a passive income of $80,000 and you've got a large chunk that you can put into some very low risk, low return asset, but if it gives you that $80,000, then who cares? It's giving you what you want. Um, So maybe that's the lifestyle that you want to live. Um, It's fine. Um, What have you got down there, Jordan?
2: Yeah, so I'll just reiterate some of the stuff that, Steve mentioned that we've got in the notes, but um, you can find that really good lifestyle. Like if you sold your portfolio and you had $5 million or whatever it might be, you know, and you really wanted to buy that yacht or you really wanted to go sail the Greek islands for three years, like you can do that you can find that extravagant lifestyle. You just have to really plan out how long those funds are going to survive and last you through that retirement period. Um, Risk-free in terms of not having the debt and the interest rate movements, Again, it can be planned and executed really well. You're essentially buying and building a portfolio to sell off um, and you can stagnate those property sales as you start to go along. Again, as Steve mentioned with the tax benefits. Um, Some of the cons is, again, the no generational wealth play. So you're really just Mm -hmm. stuffing the kids there and not being able to pass on that legacy. Um, you, you'll need to time that exit correctly. Uh, make sure that the, the funds don't run out over that retirement period. Um, sale and exiting costs, again, is a big one. So 3% on the way out plus capital gains tax is a lot of money, um, where if you had kids, you could pass that on instead. Um, Inflation is going to eat away at that savings. So let's say, again, in that scenario, if you had $5 million in savings, might be a lot of money now, but over... A, 20, 30 years, inflation's gonna eat away at that as well. And um, you might run out at some point and you don't have that that passive income, as Steve was mentioning, with the, with the growth of the economy and the market and rents and everything else that goes along, you, you get the benefit of that if you stay in the game. Whereas if you exit out of the game, you're susceptible just to your lump sum of savings that you've got on the journey.
1: Yeah, yeah. One, one of the things as well is, we, I, I don't believe this is gonna happen, but property has been going up over time regularly, pretty stably long-term, there might yeah. be a day the property doesn't go up. Like I know yeah. we've all made our wealth through property. There might be a day property prices drop 50% and having a portfolio actually really harms you. So it gets rid of that because, like you said, you've got the, the money sitting under your mattress, Joe. You've got some control of it that way. But again, we're all three of us don't believe property is ever going to go back because they're not making any more land. But you, you never actually know. There could be world wars and stuff like that and the market could really turn.
2: 100%, it's a good point. It might, and even if it doesn't go down, it might stay stagnant for 10 years, 20 years. What are you going to do in that situation? Like, makes it hard. And and there's so many variables and things that can come up along the journey. So just got to make an educated decision and approach to it all.
1: But this is exactly why I recommend people to have game plans because that's a live lifetime kind of plan that you can have. No, I'm being, I'm being serious, but you can run the scenarios very easily. You go, what happens if I get ne- 0% growth for five years? What do I look like then? What happens if mm-hmm. I get... Five percent growth for a few years, and you might not like the outcome, but at least you're prepared for it. And that's that's Mm. of kind of having that plan and playing those numbers. I get like one of my my sales calls. People go, "Oh, and bloody interest rates are at six percent, yada yada yada." I've been planning for six percent interest rates for the last ten years. Like my all my cash flow spreadsheets, I type in six percent because that's somewhat near where the average has been for the last twenty years. And then people go, "But we it's been." Low. And like, oh, like i'm not buying for the next six months i'm buying for the next 10 years yeah. and that's that's the funniest thing i get with the conversations at the moment with the market with interest rates people keep saying literally in the same conversation property is a long-term game i'm buying for the next 10 15 years however i'm planning to sit out of the market for the next six months because i think the market's going to stay flat or I'll pick up a bargain and i'm just like yeah. well which one is it you've just told me it's a long-term game and you're buying with a long-term mindset but now we're playing a six-month gamble. So so you're, you're yeah. saying the exact opposite thing in the same breath. And yeah. it doesn't no matter what the market's doing. You should be focusing demand in 10 years' time and buying now. You buy to the market you're in. If you can pick up a bargain because there's less buyers in the market, brilliant. you do it. If you're not picking up a bargain because there's thousands of buyers, cool, you still do the same thing. It's still a 10-year mindset. Yeah, but even,
2: and, even good, and- good property will always have demand behind it. Like I'm I'm a fan of even if you had to pay 10% extra for a property, if it's a great asset and there's demand behind it, then there's always going to be demand behind it. It's in a great location. It's got some great aspects to it. And, you know, in, in 10, 20, 30 years time, that 10% is going to seem minuscule compared to where it's going to be over that longer term time horizon. So um, sorry to cut you off there, Joe. But yeah, I, I, I totally agree with where you're coming from, Steve.
0: Yeah, it's so it's so true. Um, you, you see people having this mindset around. Oh no, I'm trying to time the market. It's like, well, yeah, but in six months' time, you're going to lose your job, or your wife's going to have a baby. Um, and and all of a sudden, you can't borrow to buy a property anymore. So what you could have had it six months ago, you're now going to have to wait. You know, two years for to be able to borrow again, or eighteen years because you've got a dependent.
1: Like it's. Yeah. it's- the conversation gets even funnier with commercial because, like, say we go out and buy a million dollar commercial property, which is about 25, 30 grand a year passive income on a 70% loan. People go, Oh, no, I think the market's going to drop a little bit. I'm going to sit out of the market for 12 months. Yeah. Okay. It drops 5%. So now that million dollar property is worth 950. I've had 30 grand passive income if I bought the property now. So you wait in a year, you've saved yourself 20 grand. So you've missed out on opportunity cost of capital growth over 20 grand. And if 20 grand is changing your lifestyle and your portfolio, reassess. Go, go pack some shelves at Coles one night a week and you make 10, 15 grand. You can make that up without taking the risk. So it's just people that try to play that six-month game. I've been doing this for a long time now and I've literally dealt with thousands, probably three, four thousand clients. I've seen their portfolios. I'm yet to meet anyone who's been able to pick the market for six months. Not one person. So I don't know why thinks they're going to beat everyone else and jump in five minutes before the flock. If anything, if you've got people, everyone's sitting out there for six to 12 months waiting, that means there's going to be another spike in prices because you're going to have the same supply, but way more people demanding it. And that'll push prices up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. It's going to be interesting when this new stamp duty change comes in, um, in, in new South Wales, you can have, uh, you don't pay your you know, $32,000 stamp duty. You can pay it as an annual fee. So all of a sudden, the market now has an additional $32,000 that they're going to be like, oh, well, what am I going to do with this? I may as well buy and spend a little bit more on that next property. Maybe that's going to change the way things uh, go on uh, prices as well. Um, but so, we have but, our seventh and final. Just, um, people, yeah, want to,
1: people want to spend money. They have to put their money somewhere, whether it mm. be in the, into some of the stock market or into property, they have to put their money somewhere. And the the thing I keep reiterating to people is unemployment's at its absolute lowest at the moment. So if you want a job, you can typically go get it if you want it. So the incomes and savings are there at the moment. So whatever interest rates are doing, people have money and they've got to put it somewhere. Where you put that money is your decision and that's the shares versus property argument, things like that, but the the economy is still strong. So there, there are some good premises for property.
2: And when when it goes, it goes like you're better off being in a market at the moment with two to three bidders or two to three interested buyers. Or some cases there's like, you're the only interested buyer. When the market flips, all of a sudden there's like hundreds of people's going through the open home. There's 20 people um, bidding at auction. Like it, it gets full on and it goes fast. So like, as Steve said, like don't try and pick the bottom. If it's, decent market conditions to potentially buy, like, and you're in a good financial position to do so, just take advantage of it now, because you're not gonna pick the exact moment it's at the bottom.
0: Yeah. Okay, we have number seven for our exit strategies for property investing, selling some properties by vendor finance. Steve, can you explain what vendor finance is and how this strategy works?
1: So not many people obviously know or understand this one, but this is typically for commercial properties or like high-end like apartment blocks and stuff like that, where you've got like a $10 million apartment tower or things like that. It's where you're basically selling the property, but you're financing the buyer. So they're effectively, you're giving them a loan. So they might not have enough, big enough deposit. And then you typically, it's like three to five years. It's when you've got a good asset class, like say you own a, a whole little shopping center. So you've got like a little $5 million shopping center and the reason why someone might do this is because you can actually command a better price for the property. Because someone who might actually pay a premium because they get to buy the property now, and because it's really positively geared, it actually pays for itself. So, as an owner, if I own that shopping center and I know it's a good quality asset, I'm not worried about them not being able to make repayments because it's just coming out of their passive income. Instead of them having a 200K passive income, I'm getting 100 grand of it. And the the benefit for me is I obviously don't have the same interest rates with the banks and things like that. And I can stage my retirement. I can still keep the passive income from that property over, say, five years before I've completely dissolved of it. So like all the other strategies we went through, once it's gone, it's gone, you've lost it. This one's a nice phase in one where you might phase into retirement with it, have the tax advantages and things like that. Um, It's not in a hot market in the last couple of years. It hasn't been used that much. But two plus years ago, I was seeing it quite regularly, but it's it's a nice kind of little stage approach. The main thing is, and people go, oh, what if the, the new buyer doesn't pay off the debt and things like that? You are covered legally with all that stuff. There are literally things called like, you got like a balloon payment date where if they haven't paid by certain dates, you get the property back. So like say in three years time, they've missed a payment, you theoretically can actually take the whole property back. So you're like, cool, thanks for paying off 15% of that debt for me. And you go from there. The other one is you make sure you have rock solid guarantees on it. So the person who's who's buying the property from you, you'll base it on their like their portfolio or their personal income. So you'll effectively have like rights to their PPOR or their business or yeah. a few other properties. And you can there's a thousand ways to skin the cat, but you make sure you yeah. can protect it legally through their assets. You don't just give it to average Joe Tucker who's like, Yeah, I'm good for it. Trust me. You have to put up something. You might go, okay, cool. I'm gonna give you a title of my five properties if I don't pack. So it's risky from a buyer's point of view. If From a seller, not so much if you get your kind of bulletproof contracts in place.
0: Yeah, but it allows them to get into a better, potentially better asset. And th- that vendor is then helping them get into it. Super interesting strategy, super interesting. Well, what have you the, got
1: here? I to yeah. say one of the things I've actually noticed is most of the times I've seen my clients buy or sell with vendor finance, the current owner is normally just attached to the property. It's normally some like, old guy or girl who loves that property. They've been like property managing their little shopping centre for 10 years personally, and they just can't quite let it go. And they end up selling it to like a buyer that they actually really like. They're like, oh, I like this guy. I'm going to help him out. And then they kind of phase that way. So there is a weird emotional aspect to it sometimes I find.
0: <laughs> well, just letting you know, we have people here that are happy to sell to me with vendor finance. So (laughs) that's what matters the most. What have you got, Jordan? What are some of the pros and cons of this sucker?
2: Yeah, I've got one clear con con pro, which is essentially it's an easier finance to transition out of property than just a hard sale. So as Steve mentioned, you get all those benefits of the income and everything else like that as you negate or move out of the portfolio. It's not like this hard line in the sand, all of a sudden you lose your passive income um some of the cons and steve covered these really well but not all buyers might be open to vendor finance so like if this is your planned exit strategy it might be limiting your buyer pool to who you can potentially vendor finance Mm -hmm. through and obviously it's a different game in the commercial space as well um again if it's like a planned thing that you know you want to do in sort of 15 20 years government or regulation policy may change and i guess that's a risk for everything but you never know what might change between now and then if it's like definitely what you want to do. Um, and then the final comment that I had is the finance potentially falling through. Um, but I think Steve covered it really well in terms of what you can do to help protect yourself in that situation.
0: Yeah, here's a question that's popped up. Will the banks lend to the purchase through a vendor finance?
1: I think that might be up to you. So that, that's the whole point of vendor finance is you're getting the finance from the seller. So it's separate to the banks. You'll you If their question is, can you still get bank finance? Yes, you can still get your 50% or 70% LVR and then part of your deposit might actually come from the vendor finance. For instance, you might have 20% there. Um, but a lot of it's actually done elsewhere. It gets real complicated when you try to marry up both of them. Um, banks typically don't like it. And every time I've seen it happen, it's just an absolute mashup that lasts for three to six months for finance.
0: Mm, yeah, I can imagine. There's a question here. Anything we should be wary of when it comes to vendor finance?
1: Yeah, I, I sort of covered it before with basically making sure the guarantees are rock solid. Like yeah. it's, you're trusting that that person's going to pay you back. So you, you, yeah. you're affecting the bank. When you do vendor finance, you are a bank. So you want to be doing the same checks, if not more than what the banks are doing to ensure that you actually get that back. And then that's where you set the, the rules for if they miss a payment, what happens, what the interest rates are, if you want to do it that way. Yeah. When... It's like
0: a joint venture with a with another with the party that owns the property, right? Like Yeah,
1: effectively. And then, yeah. Like, what what are the exit strategies if they don't pay? Like do what do you get? Do you get the property back or do you get to force them to sell sell one of their PPIs and things like that? So it's not it's not for the everyday investor. Don't go into this if you think, Oh, I've got a couple of properties, I might buy this property through vendor finance. No make sure you know what you're doing. You, you, you need to be a kind of experienced investor with this one. Okay. So,
2: given given this is a bit of a, a more like commercial space focused, how is the commercial space going at the moment? Like I'm super curious around like all the different types of investments and everything else. Like I remember like in the middle of COVID, everyone was worried about, like well, what were all these office spaces in CBDs going to do and like all these different types of investments that are like commercial focused but we're so worried about the the best the best case or best use scenario like how is how is the commercial space going at the moment
1: it's re- really strong as we all know so same same thing as residential it's softened a little bit so we are getting a little bit like 0.2% more cap rates on buys but like in terms of office space I've never really liked office space anyway, because it's too prone to oversupply. They, they can build a 20-story skyscraper next to and oversupply. However, I am actually starting to buy some office space for clients, normally in the kind of lifestyle-type regions, so where people like like mm. sunny, and areas like that, where it's not zoned that they can go over two levels, so I can limit the supply there. And then they're nice kind of open spaces, still got a little warehouse or something like that. Um, but that's because I can get a bit more clarity now about the numbers because I can actually see, okay, people are coming back into office where that kind of balance point is. So I'm not against offices, but it's got to have this fundamental. It's got to have land component and lack of supply. Supply and demand is how it kind of goes with everything. Um, suburban retail, that's still doing really strong. So people are working from home two, three days a week. So all the local know, cafes, medical centres, CrossFit gyms and all that type of stuff are still going really strong. So... I've always liked suburban retail because you get sticky tenants so yeah, yeah. Once, once they're in that location they don't move they, they they're based on that location if they're successful they open another coffee shop or another medical center in a different location so you get a good longevity of tenant with those um, but the big one at the moment is industrial properties so like we speak oh, yeah. last time I spoke to you guys I was saying I oh, yeah vacancy rates are down at like 1.6 percent which is really attractive because that's like a residential vacancy rate. They're yeah. down at 08 to 1.2% now. Ooh. So there's a huge undersupply. We're actually the, the lowest vacancy rates we've ever had for industrial. And globally, Australia has the lowest vacancy rates for industrial. And this is kind of what I lived before about things aren't so bad. Like people have money, people go, oh yeah, but rents won't go up. And I'm like, I don't think you understand what vacancy rate means. Vacancy rate that's in demand. (laughs) Like, the shorter, the more people are looking. So, for me, buying an industrial property on a 0.8%, when people say, I don't want to buy commercial because it's too high risk in terms of vacancy, that that argument's out the window now. You've got Mm 0.8%. So, as long as you're buying in a good area, again, don't do something stupid. Don't go buy it in a greenfield estate where they're building new warehouses and go, oh, Steve said Brisbane's got a 0.8% vacancy rate. That doesn't apply. Like it's same as residential. You don't go and just buy in a mining town. So still look at the numbers. But if you're buying like an industrial estate and it's surrounded by residential, and that residential population is growing, and the vacancy rates are like 0.8 one percent for that industrial estate, I find it a hard argument to say that that property is not going to be in more demand in five or ten years time. Because how how's You're still going to need more car mechanics, spray painters, wholesalers, distributors, storage. Like that demand's only going to increase. And guess what demand does? Causes increases in rent. Guess what increases in rent do? Capital growth. So I I find it a hard argument to say those types of assets aren't going to give you more passive income and capital growth. The argument I'm having with most investors at the moment is how are interest rates going to kind of play out? Like how is that affecting that? But however, rents are going up drastically. And sorry, I know I'm rambling, but like in the last quarter, CBRE reported 8% across the board, every capital city, 8% rental increases over the quarter. So not even the whole year, 8% over the quarter. So so. most of the leases, and this is part of the hard thing with commercial is you don't realise big increases for two or three, five years because the leases are long. Most of my personal commercials and the clients' ones that are coming up for lease this year, we're bumping up the rents 20 to 30%. So even though we're seeing 30%, increases in interest rates we're sort of matching that so like we're not yeah. we're not seeing a huge dip in cash flow and that's that's what people thought was going to happen you're going to increase interest rates therefore i pick up a bargain at a lower price no the rents are coming up on par with it as well and they kind of have to that's inflation and interest rates are a guide of the market of what's going on so if there's money there it kind of comes up so like yeah. i said before, don't try to play the six-month market anyway buy with the 10-year mindset and then you'll be all right the good thing with commercial, I know I'm rambling on. Um, good thing with commercial is even at higher interest rates, it still pays for itself. So like a million dollar one, it's 20 grand year positive now. If we see a couple percent extra interest rates, yeah, that 25 grand will go down to zero or five grand. You can weather that storm. And that that's sort of why I like commercial in some circumstances over residential because a uh, neutrally good residential property with higher interest rates, Guess what happens? It's negative. And all of a sudden, there's your lifestyle, there's your exit strategy change where you have to start forking out money as opposed to weathering the storm.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I love that. Okay. So we have had seven exit strategies we have keeping all of the properties and not paying down the debt, we've got keeping all the properties and paying down the debt, keeping all the properties and increasing your debt, selling part of your portfolio to pay down the debt selling part of your portfolio and living off the profit, selling your whole portfolio. And last but not least, selling some properties by vendor finance. Are there any other exit strategies? Throw them in the comments below. If anyone has any other ways to exit property, that would be awesome to hear. But what Jordan has done has factored some of these into the game plans platform to show us what we are dealing with when we actually exit. So this is what I love about the platform. It's super visual and it will give you that representation. So can you give us an overview of the person that we're dealing with here, Jordan? Um, and should I share your screen now?
2: Yeah, go for gold. Um, okay, so essentially, uh, <laughs> you, you and the, every time I want to call with Joe, he's like, can you zoom in? Can you zoom in? Um, so essentially the person that we're going for is a household income of 200K and they currently have 150K in savings, but no properties in their portfolio. The accumulation stage is the same for everyone. And I'll go through that in a second, but the other key number to remember is that we're saving around five grand a month as well. Um, So Joe, can you see my screen and all looks good and everything like that? Yep, yep, yep. Awesome. So we're buying, the accumulation stage is four properties over eight years. Mm. Um, We're doing an inflated property value of 500K. So we're buying a 500K property this year and then inflated at 5% uh, by 2024. 2026, and the first one is the last one is in 2028, um, and the growth rates and yields vary on these as well. So I think from memory, the first two that we're looking at is a 5% compound growth rate with a 4% yield, and then we go for that sort of higher cash flow or commercial play for the last two. So we're looking at 5% growth rate, but five and a half percent yield on those as well. So same acquisition for all of the strategies just that I've just mentioned. A couple of key things. The, to to watch. So this first one, oh, hold on, let me go back to um, this is keeping properties and then keeping debt as we head into retirement. So we're on the accumulation stage. We get to uh, a mark. One, <laughs> <laughs> one more, one more, one more. <laughs> one more. Yeah. But then they oh, get okay. Step. One less. One less. Okay. Okay. Is that yeah. Better? Yeah. Um. So we get to two point six in twenty twenty eight. And then over 30 years at that 5% compound growth rate, we get to about 8.6 over that longer term time horizon. So if we just leave the portfolio as is, accumulating over time, we end up hitting a passive income goal of 100K um, over about a 14, 15 year period. And we allow that to continue. Now, the exit strategy or that sort of line in the sand that we've been talking about that doesn't exist is in 2042. For every single one of these strategies, so we're going to walk through how that looks like. So the exit strategy for this one with retaining our debt means we still get a hundred k passive income, um, but we go from one eight nine down to hundred because we're rolling over to P&I in that time frame. So essentially, we're paying you know ninety k towards principal on an annual basis now, whereas if we stayed interest only, we'd have that ninety k remaining in our bank account or going into the offset account. So we've still got that passive income coming through over that longer term time horizon and it increases as we head into retirement, but it does drop down when we do that PI rollover. The thing is though, that we're still heading into retirement with debt. So if we change, we're not going to offset our debt. What we get is we're still heading into retirement. If our retirement stage is 2041 or 2042, we've still got circa... million worth of debt heading into retirement. At the peak, it was closer to to 2.06, but we were staying interest only the whole way through anyway. The key thing to watch here is our savings does continue to come down over time, which is okay because, you know, it's not going down to zero. We're still paying for our living expenses, our current living expenses inflated in that year. Um, But at the same time too, we're paying principal down and we have that passive income coming through over that longer term time horizon. So this is a scenario where we're accumulating the portfolio and then still heading into debt, uh, into the retirement stage of life. Obviously
0: looking looking really good,
2: looking, looking pretty good from, from that side of things. When we look at our monthly savings, so we're saving around five grand a month this year, we end up going to about 15 K over that, uh, period before we exit. Then we do actually go negative for about three or five years there when we're, um, Rolled over to P and I, but then we go back into the surplus. So we get through that period just with our cash, uh, and then we're looking pretty good from that side of things. Super. The second second one that we're going to go through is our um, keeping the properties, uh, but we're going to pay off that debt completely. So again, same scenario, same income, same same rates, everything else like that. Acquisition of the properties is still all the same. Except what we're doing now is in that 2024 period, we're taking what we would have of savings of around 1.8 mil, actually eliminating you know, close to 1.5 mil worth of savings and deleting or getting rid of majority of our debt in that year. So if we turn the offset off in this scenario again, what we'll see is our, our debt is actually much lower than the previous scenario. So we're bringing our debt down to sort of 500K. Now, the argument with this is you could wait a couple more years, save a bit more money, and eliminate the rest of the debt. Um, But we are eliminating our debt. Our our target was that 2042 period, and we're eliminating as much debt as we can in that year. So I'll just turn the offset back on so we get accurate passive income numbers. Um, From this scenario, again, we're we're, we're quite good. Like We hit that passive income target uh, by 2036, and then we're still rolling through if we've, we've still got that a bit of PI in that 2042 period, but we still end up at about 180 of passive income moving forward into oh, the future.
0: It's not a cliff anymore. It's not a massive drop off because you've been paying down that debt.
2: Yeah, you've, you've paid off that debt completely um, and now you've got that that passive income th- coming through. Now the only con with this is obviously you've got to pay tax on this income um, and you don't get that inflated away debt. When you do have debt heading into retirement that starts to inflate away. Um, but we don't have in this, in this scenario, we don't actually have that period of, you know, three to five years where we're actually in negative territory. We still stay positive with our savings. Um, it's just not as strong as obviously it was pre uh, eliminating the debt. So again, another common scenario and looks pretty decent. The third one that we had was keeping our properties, but increasing debt. So again, Same income, same savings, uh, all of the above, same acquisitions. Uh, But what we can see now is we're essentially, and this is that more riskier scenario instead of Steve's, like if you had a PPOR and took a bit of money out. But what we're actually doing here is in 2033, 2037, and then 2042, we're refinancing the portfolio and pulling that debt out as we start to go along. So if we were to go into retirement in 2042, we're still heading into retirement with, circa four million dollars worth of debt, which is a pretty risky thing to do. But the good thing is that we do have three million worth of savings or or equity that we've extracted that we've put It'll into or into an offset account. Now the risky thing with this is we're obviously going negative savings moving forward here. And so you know you are chipping away at that savings number as we start to go along. And this is what we were saying beforehand with just ensuring that we do have enough savings or, or equity to sustain going into that period. But this is why it is a riskier play because we're chipping away at our savings as we head into retirement. Interestingly enough, though, in terms of our, our uh, passive income target, we are lower here as we go through because we're refinancing, increasing our debt, which means our interest rate payments are going to increase. Once we recast and, and put everything onto p we do go negative, but only for a period of two years. And then interesting enough, over the 30 years, we end up getting closer to a passive income of 100K. So it is a riskier strategy. We are relying on our not chipping away too much of our savings. But at some point in time, the, the passive income, because we're sustaining the portfolio, continues to increase. And we might get to a point, depending on how long we decide to retire for, where we have still got enough income coming through to sustain the portfolio. Wow. Okay. Uh, scenario for was uh, selling one of the properties so yep selling property to pay debt so in
1: this scenario again one of the questions i can see which is actually quite applicable to this is someone's question self-managed super fund properties which for me it's exactly the same as buying a property out of self-managed super fund fixed end date that you know that's basically going to free up so you can actually model this i imagine in game plans of okay i know at retirement age, I've got access to this property at twenty thirty five, and then you can calculate from there.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. That's a that's a great point, especially if you're planning that retirement pe- period around the the rollover. So I don't know what the age is. It's like sixty two, or I think it's changed recently. But whenever that retirement rollover period is, if that property in the self managed super fund is actually now transferring into your name or into your you know actual portfolio, it's the same thing. You can choose to sell that and the same thing would essentially happen. You just have to be restricted to that line in the sand of this is when you now have access to that portfolio instead of being a self-managed super fund. Um, So this is the selling off of one property. So again, same acquisition and everything. We end up getting to uh, circa 5 mil of market value and then we actually sell that property. So we come down to about 3.8. So we're losing value of our portfolio, but by doing that, we're increasing our savings and then paying off the remainder of our debt. So we essentially have zero debt by 2042. It comes at the cost of a portfolio value, but now we're in a good equity position. We've still got circa 550K worth of savings in the bank and zero debt heading into retirement. The best thing is additionally, we do have that passive income coming through. So As we saw from the first two scenarios, pretty solid hitting that goal by 2036. Um, And then we get to about 170 before retirement. We roll over. We pay our debt off completely. We've still got 140K passive income coming through and 550 or or 600K in the bank sitting there heading into that retirement period. So, again, for the more risk adverse people, they might want to just eliminate their debt completely. They're not susceptible to interest rate movements and everything else like that. Um, just going to be acceptable to inflation eating away at this income and eating away at the savings in the bank account as well. So that looks pretty good. The next one is uh, selling some of the properties and then living off the profit. So same, same, but we've got a bigger dip. So again, we accumulate, we get to circa five mil and then we have a much greater dip. So we're selling the two growth properties in this scenario. Our market value essentially halves by doing that um, and then it continues to grow from there. But the good thing is, even though we drop equity within the portfolio, we do end up with sort of $2.5 million worth of savings. So again, this is that extravagant lifestyle situation where you go, who cares? I'm just going to go buy a nice yacht or travel to Greek islands or whatever it might be. I've got the funds to do it. The only thing to remember is moving forward, we are losing passive income and we're still sustaining expenses. So our savings over time does continue to come down. And at some point in time, as we chip away at our savings, we might not have enough left to continue to do so.
1: And as Um, we mentioned before, Jordan, as well, you actually don't know how long your retirement's going to be. Like At this age, we have no idea if it's going to be 20 years, 30 years, or 50 years. Technology might advance as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, spot on. Um, so passive income wise, we do the same trajectory as the previous scenarios, as we start to get into that rollover in 2042. I think previously was still at, at a solid passive income target, I think we're about 140. And now we actually dropped down to about 67 or, or 70k out. So essentially half of we were where we were in terms of our income. Our income and our rents do continue to increase into retirement, which is great. But it's still not enough to sustain that that lifestyle expense that we've got into retirement, and we will be chipping away at savings, even though we've still got some income coming through as well. Remember that these numbers, especially in like 2052, is in today's dollars. So that 150k inflation adjust is really going to be closer to sort of 70, 80k in today's dollars. So even though it looks good and it looks like we can potentially retire. It's still that inflated number, and our expenses are going to inflate along that journey as well, which means we're going to be chipping away at our, our savings as we go along.
1: But that, That's one of the advantages, advantages, Jordan, of actually having no debt and paying it off completely because then you, you get rid of all that kind of inflation and things like that, and your income is effectively there, That and that's the argument between having it paid off or having an asset that's paid off. So if you've got your PPR paid off and an investment property that rent that you receive from the investment property should move with the market and cancel it out
2: exactly now that and you just treat like a normal income you just you got to pay tax on it and it's a normal income and it increases with the market that's why I'm a big fan of sustaining that portfolio heading into retirement yeah. um i think we've got it might just be one more but sell uh, the property and then you oh no we got two more so sell the property and use the profit so this is um, no, that was the last one that we did. So we do have one more, uh, sell all property. So this is going to look quite interesting again, same acquisition, but we have a hard sell. So we build the portfolio up to circa five mil. We sell the portfolio off completely. So we've essentially got no equity, no market value, no more debt, but we go from the savings of 1.9 to four mil. So big chunk of savings. It'd feel good to hit retirement and go, yeah, I got four million in the bank, all happy days. Obviously, you lose all of your income though. And again, you are chipping out away at your savings as you start to go along. And those inflated expenses is, you know, looking like 170K a year compared to what this year might be like, you know, 40, 50, 60K. So those expenses are increasing with the economy as well. You don't have that income coming through and the growth through the economy of the income coming through. So essentially you're just having that lump sum, it's getting inflated away and you're chipping away at it. And if you don't have that planned, this is gonna last me for 30 years, you could be stuck in a, in a bit of a situation by doing that. Even though you've gone through the same acquisition phase as all the other strategies beforehand. Um, so yeah, I hope that was valuable. I think it's probably a lot to take in, but um, they're the kind of the strategies mapped out and sort of see where they look. And I think the most, the two favorable were the two that we mentioned is that natural exit of just sustaining the portfolio, letting debt get paid down over time and heading into retirement with that. Um, but also additionally, potentially selling one property and eliminating the debt completely out of the portfolio. Uh, that, was, yeah. that was
1: brilliant. And far
2: out. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we
0: That's- record these so people can go back and just like watch and, and soak that up um, because there's a whole heap there.
1: But that, that's the thing why I like game plans, it, it's visual. Like I've, I've come up before with the, what I think is a brilliant spreadsheet. And I try to show all those numbers and they, people's eyes just glaze over. They kind of go, oh, I'm just seeing numbers on a page. It's, you can't do it, but actually seeing the graph is just pays dividends. And the best thing about game plans, you can play with the numbers. You can just go, what happens at 7%, what happens at 2% and actually see the outcomes.
2: Yeah,
0: perfect. Um... One of the questions here is where are the recordings? Um, we post them on YouTube. So go Oz Property Investors in YouTube and you'll be able to do that. We also have the podcast. So type Oz Property Investors in the podcast as well. There was a question here that was for you, Jordan. He said, I would love or she would love to hear your thoughts, Jordan, on achieving a passive income pre-retirement and then maximizing tax benefits post-retirements. 100K passive income pre-retirement sounds great. 100K passive income outside of super post-retirement is the difference of 30K in the pocket every year. Do you have a recommended way to maximise both options?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a really interesting question. And I think the best way to tackle it is that situation I was talking about beforehand is a lot of people get confused around, well, if I'm earning 100K from my income but I'm still saving two, three, four grand a month now, do you really need to continue to save that two, three, four grand a month into retirement? So it's not a like for like of uh, you know and 100k beforehand and 100k passive income. Then we just switch one off or the other. Um, and so even if you have that tax coming out of the fact, you just need to make sure that your expenses going into retirement and be really realistic. Like if you would love to go on a 20 grand holiday each year and go to Europe and enjoy, like factor that in because this is life at the end of the day, and we want to enjoy it as we go through. So figure out what your current expenses are. If you've got a paid off PPOR, that's fantastic. If you love going on a holiday, that's fantastic. But how often do you go out for dinners? What is your, your monthly costs? What is your monthly overheads? Figure out that number, reverse engineer it after or um, after tax, and then figure out the number pre-tax. And that's your goal. Like f- Figure out to get to that point and then make that decision from there.
1: And the, anything with tax minimization as well, this is the difference between a good accountant and a bad accountant. Uh, mm. A bad one, not necessarily bad, they'll just go, oh, yeah, buy under a trust or whatever it may be. A good one will say, okay, what are you actually trying to achieve with this property over what time frame? Like, what's the plan with it? Are we selling it? Are we buying it? Are you going to live off the passive income? And then that's where you'll decide whether to kind of put it under your spouse's name or the family trust or how you do the beneficiaries and things like that. so that you'll never understand that better than you're an accountant. And I find a lot of, I used to be the same. I used to be so arrogant with this stuff that, oh yeah, I can understand all of this. No, I'm not going to beat an accountant who's been doing it for 15 years, who knows it inside and out. Same thing with finance. And that's where you marry up all the team. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And every, every expert has their own kind of bias as well. Like the legal side of things are more focused on uh, risk. Um, and so if you talk to a lawyer, do I need a trust? Oh, absolutely. You need a trust because of risk, risk, risk. You talk to an accountant, you need a trust because of tax, tax, tax savings. So you need to have your team talking. That's, that's a massive part as well. Have your accountant talking to your mortgage broker and your mortgage broker talking to your buyer's agent, your buyer's agent, talking to all the team members um, because when that syncs together, it meshes so, so much smoother and Everyone's then on your side and they're working out all those little niggly bits to make sure that they're optimizing and getting you the best uh the best outcome. Um yeah,
2: there's nothing worse working with multiple people and them all telling you something or having their own opinion and then like you just being completely unsure around what to do. Like you I like I've been through that period in my journey where I've just kind of been like, Oh, this person told me to do this, so I'm gonna do that, and then that person told me to do this, so I'm gonna go do this, like. As Joe yeah. said, have everyone work together on your collective goals and, and your, your risk profile and understand what you want and what each individual asset is going to achieve for you. And reverse engineer it from there. Get everyone on the same page. Say, this is what I want and this is how we're going to get there. And, yeah, everyone's going to have their own opinions and their say and we should do this, we should do that. But collectively get everyone together and you'll come to a mutual agreement.
1: Same as getting with you, especially with your broker and your accountant, that when you say they're on the same page, they have to have the same mindset as you as well because it's very hard to get a mm-hmm. accountant who loves negative gearing trying to convince you to buy an off the plan to be on board with a passive income strategy. So find an accountant yeah. and a broker who, if not achieved what you want, is at least heading there as well and that way you can work together and you'll like each other. You'll actually have some good phone conversations and emails and Zooms as opposed to them being transactional.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Um throwing you questions, guys. We have gone very much over time and I appreciate both of you guys for spending so much time on this. So I just wanted to run through a couple of comments. Um, and we can go through it. Commercial property, I bought it through Steve Polisi. Look at this, mate. You've got you've got customers on there. This is our fourth investment. Does it need to be an exit strategy or can we draw funds again for another residential?
1: Nah, just keep buying through me. That's all I care about. Just buy me another. <laughs> Oh, no, okay. So uh, it depends on what we're trying to do over, and just reach out to me personally, obviously, and we'll go through it in the details, but it just depends on what we're trying to achieve over what time frame. So if we've got enough passive income now that we've got can service a residential loan and get a bigger LVR, and we've got 10, 15 years to plan, yep, then we'll switch back to residential. And I find that with a lot of people, like you'll buy two or three resi, then you can get a commercial, and that's enough to kind of squeeze out another resi. And as you build your net base, you'll kind of start doing one for one. And then even some investors have got like, you buy two commercial to the one resi. And then you get guys who just then all girls just want to keep buying commercial. That is like, cool, I want to increase my passive income from 100 to 120 to 140. And they'll just keep doing, which is where I'm kind of currently at. So like me personally, it sounds, sounds arrogant. I don't care that much about capital growth anymore. Like I still want it as a safety net, but I'm all for lifestyle. Like I've, I've got enough properties now where I'm, I'm going to be okay financially. So for me, it's just increasing the lifestyle and paying down a PPOR. Whereas if you're like halfway there, then okay, you want to keep building. So there's there's no right answer. Just what time frame versus what the end goal is, and then marry that up with your borrowing capacity. And at
2: one point that like Steve actually taught me, which was like a, a good mind shift, is like there's this there's this common theory out there that commercial property doesn't grow, and it's like cash flow versus growth. But hmm. like a commercial property that's worth two hundred k. Over a twenty-year period, can't just go to like three hundred k. Like it actually has to grow with the market. And so I think there's a misconception out there of like, oh, if we go commercial, that's it. We're going to lose out on growth. We're just going for that cash flow play. Like, and and this is like that like generational thing as well. Like some people are like, oh, I should just go for like super blue chip assets, and I can pass millions of dollars onto the next generation. But like, does it really matter? Like, would, maybe they would prefer two three hundred K worth of income coming through in retirement plus an asset base already. Yeah, it might not be like two or three million dollars in advance, but you're still handing over an asset base that they'd be better off with than without. So like really think about all those all those different things and how they work and, and what it is that you want before you transition back and forth between residential and commercial.
0: Yeah, this has been an absolute masterclass in strategy and exit strategy, something that I I don't think is ever really talked about. I think um, we will wrap it up there, gentlemen. Um, Thank you both very much for taking the time, Steve. Thank you very much, Jordan, for giving us the run through. Steve, if people want to learn a little bit more about you, where can they go to, to learn more?
1: Just send me a Facebook message, private get slide into my DMs. I respond to everyone within kind of four or five hours. So just yeah, shoot me a message or go to policeyproperty.com and send an inquiry form. Um, I've got lots of lots of freebies on there, heaps of like commercial spreadsheets and stuff like that. Sample property plans you can download. Um yeah, so just, just reach out and I'll get back to you.
0: Yeah. And also one thing you've got that, you've got the commercial property book. And I think people that are kind of scared of commercial property, you've, bi- you've built that book and it really is just a step-by-step guide explaining everything for commercial property. And it gets you comfortable and be like, like, it's just like risk is one of those things where people are like, oh my gosh, it's, there's too much. I just don't understand it. But as soon as you understand it, then the risk gets taken away a lot more and you feel a lot more comfortable with it. So um, have a read through that book and that should help. Answer a lot of the questions that you might have, so you can then have a more informed conversation with Steve. Um, Use
1: code Ozprop as well if you want fifty percent off.
0: Uh, we do not get any money for that, unfortunately. So <laughs> do whatever you want. Use the code Freebook. In fact, <laughs> yeah.
1: I get I get some people like they're giving me grief for giving my book away for free. I'm like I don't just like mm. have an infinite amount of books. I actually have to pay for them. Like it cost me twelve dollars. Like I'm giving you yeah. money. <laughs> And they're like,
0: well, this is book sales technique. I I gifted the other day. I was like, oh, Steve, I was chatting to a client. I'm like, I want to send them the commercial book. And then I'm like, oh, I'll get Steve to send I'm like, screw it. I'll just just do it on the thing. I'm sure free book still works. And it does. (laughs) Sorry, mate. Um, Jordan, thank you very much for your expertise. How can people learn more
2: about you, mate? No, nah, no stress at all. Um, just Jordan at gameplans.com.au if you want to get in contact with me. I'm most prominent on Facebook and LinkedIn, probably, but I also work pretty closely with these two blokes. So if you end up going through them or talking to them, um, we all work collectively together. So yeah, I'm kind of everywhere. Yeah. Well,
0: Steve and I both realize how important property strategy is. I am not the expert in property strategy. That is why I have Jordan as my head of strategy. And the first point of everything before you start buying a property, before you do any of that stuff, you have to get that strategy down down pat. And then out of that strategy, you know where you're going. What is your ultimate goal? And what are the steps that are going to allow me to get there? And then you create that property plan, which is what is this exact next property going to be? And then you can go out there and get that next property. Um, thank you very much, gentlemen. Reach out to these guys if ever you wanna have a chat. and. Um,
1: Let's go buy a property. See you later. Thanks, guys. See you, guys.
0: Hear more interviews and share your story with some of Australia's top property experts and commentators now by joining the Oz Property Investors Facebook group with over 25,000 property investors so we can all become better property investors together.